Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. You are so incredibly good and merciful to us, Father. Your love is pure and holy, and You give it so freely to Your people. We are loved by our God. We are sustained. We are kept by our God. You who are holy and righteous, yet You love this world that is corrupted with sin. You look down in Your mercy and You saved a sinful people. Father, help us to see Your love through Your Son, Jesus Christ. That Your love will be sufficient and it is eternal. May we see that, hold on to it, and treasure it, savor it more than anything. Help us to treasure and to cherish Jesus above all other things. Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness to us. Help us to see all Your promises are fulfilled through Your Son, Jesus. Through the Holy Spirit, keep us, Father. Sustain us, guide us, and transform us into the holy, righteous people. A holy priesthood that's here for You. Father, as You do it for us, do it for the Persians of Pakistan. Father, we pray that You will come into those people's lives, that You will raise up brothers, that You will establish churches, that they will come to see Your steadfast love. And they will raise praises and thanksgiving to the heavens because of Your glory and Your mercy to them. Father, we pray for brothers and sisters to be sent out from among us to these people. Father, I pray that You'll send out brothers and sisters, missionaries who will forsake it all knowing that You are worth it. Father, we pray that You will establish churches according to Your Word. That brothers there among the Persians of Pakistan will preach it rightly. They'll preach Your Word. The whole counsel of God will be known, will be feared, will be loved, will be worshipped. Father, we pray that You will come and raise up a people there. Father, as You do it there, we ask that You'll do it at Grace Buchanan Church. Father, we pray for Pastor Colin and his family, his wife Jessica and Keegan and Ellie. Father, sustain them. Strengthen them. Bring more brothers and sisters around them. Establish a body that's grounded in Your Word, who will proclaim the truths of Your Word. And those around them will see Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. We pray that You will grow that body, that as the Gospel is advanced, that You will save many there in West Virginia. Father, we pray also for the International Mission Board, the ministry partner that we've prayed all month for. Father, we pray that You will continue to send out more brothers and sisters. That You will strengthen them and their families and You will go before them and Your work will be 
glorified and honored, that they will see the fruit of their labor. Father, we pray for that here in King George, that we will see fruit, not only in our labor here, Father, but the other gospel-centered, Christ-honoring churches here in King George County. May we see fruit from our labor. May we be the vessels that You call us to be. And may You work in us and through us, Father, and You will bring more people to Yourself, that You'll save the lost in our community. Father, we specifically pray for Pastor Cliff of Oakland Baptist Church. Strengthen him today. Give him the boldness to preach the Gospel. And may the people there, the church of Oakland Baptist Church, receive Your Word. Be doers of Your Word. Father, we ask all this in Your Son's precious name. Amen. you'll take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians, we're looking at the last section of chapter 15 this morning, verses 50 to 58. It's on the bottom of page 962 in the church Bible. If you need one and have not yet grabbed one, please feel free to get up and grab one. And when you're there, please stand as I read God's Word to hear about the believer's resurrected body and the victory that Jesus Christ not only has, but He has given to you, to those who repent and believe. His followers have been given the same victory. Let's, let's read it now. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. When you think of salvation, do you think about the forgiveness of your sin? Or do you think about fellowship with God? Do you want salvation for your sins to be cleansed, to be washed away completely? 
Or do you want salvation so that you can be with God? Now it may sound like I'm putting the forgiveness of sins and the fellowship with God in opposition against each other because I think most of us, when we think about being saved or when we want someone else to be saved, we put all of our thoughts and our attention on the forgiveness of sin. And that's as far as we go. But to what end? Why does the forgiveness of sin matter? Why does salvation have to include the forgiveness of sins? Is it only to escape punishment? Is that why you want salvation? Or is it about the Son of God? Is salvation about Jesus Christ? Scripture tells us that God grants salvation so that His people will live in His kingdom and have fellowship with Him. That's salvation. Salvation does not end at the forgiveness of sin. Salvation gets sin out of the way. The cleansing of sin has to occur in order to be with the holy, righteous God. We are saved in order to be brought to God. The forgiveness of sin is not... It is not the goal of salvation. It is a part of it. Sin has to be dealt with. It has to be conquered in order to have this eternal fellowship between God and believers. Without the forgiveness of sin, there can be no communion with God. Salvation occurs by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, so that believers can be with God. So believers can enjoy God and they can worship God for all eternity. Salvation is about being together with God. The forgiveness of sin comes from Christ's atoning work on the cross. And the fellowship with God endures because Jesus was raised from the dead. Death being the penalty for sin and Jesus overcoming that penalty through His resurrection. And because of His resurrection, not only are followers of Christ, everyone who repents and believes in Him, not only are they forgiven of their sin, they are brought into fellowship with Him. They are promised to be resurrected one day in order to live in His kingdom and to be with Him. That's the goal of salvation. Living in a real, resurrected body, fellowshipping with the resurrected Savior in a real kingdom. 
that's full of splendor and majesty and goodness and the righteousness of God. That is what salvation does for the believer. This is what Paul has been laying out to the Corinthians and for us in chapter 15. There is a future so glorious and better than what Christians experience today. We live forgiven knowing that it gets even better for us in eternity. We live today with a hope for tomorrow because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are promised a future in God's kingdom that far surpasses the forgiveness of sin. Today, Paul brings this climactic summary of the resurrection chapter, this grand conclusion to a close. As he speaks about, as he wrote about, the resurrection of the body. This is so much more than about the forgiveness of your sin. This is about eternal happiness in the full presence of Almighty God. Paul is speaking about the state of the body after the future resurrection. Our bodies have to change. Our bodies now, they have to change in order to be with Christ in His kingdom. He has already said that it's not new bodies that believers will be given. Both this earth and our bodies now will be gloriously changed when the Lord comes again. Paul says in Romans 8, 22-24, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. What happens to you now as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, is preparation for the great day in the future when Christ comes. God is establishing His kingdom in the hearts of, His br- of brothers and sisters all around the world, and every single believer, whether they're alive or whether they have died, they will be given a new body that's like the one you have now, but it will be gloriously different. What has happened to you by faith now is only the beginning. Christ has given believers the sure hope of salvation. He's given them this completion, the consummation of eternal life in a resurrected body that will be delivered from sin and have pure holiness to enjoy and rest in the presence of God. That is salvation. It gets sin out of the way so you can fully and completely enjoy the presence 
of God. There is life after death because of Jesus. But it's more than some spiritual continuation after life. There is gloriously new communion with the risen Savior that goes way beyond Him even helping us now. There's something better. Salvation is gloriously more than what we typically think about. It is victory over death and the redemption of our bodies. When God brings about that change, death will be defeated and believers will enter into the magnificent presence of God for eternity because of the victory in Jesus Christ. Now something to understand here is what the prevailing thought in Corinth was when Paul wrote this. And actually it's not that far different from what we encounter today. As a Greek city, the Greeks believed in the afterlife. Like most people, when you talk to them today, most people will at least acknowledge there's an afterlife. They believe, the Greeks believe, the soul went on living after death. There was some sort of spiritual world beyond the grave. But there was no concept of the resurrection. There was no understanding of what it really is like. And this is what you and I have to grasp today. When Paul was preaching in Athens, when he was preaching about Christ and His resurrection, the Greeks thought what he was saying was strange. What do you mean someone's risen from the grave? What, what is this gibberish that Paul's talking about? And they mocked him. Those in the Corinthian church... When they're saved, they brought this teaching with them into the faith. They needed corrected and to see that there's so much more to salvation. The resurrection is the defeat of death. It's the restoration of the whole person, body and soul. The resurrected body will be a body so conformed to the image and glory of Christ that no trace of the power and the effects of sin will remain. We will be transformed so that we can be with God forever. This is the hope that Christians have. To be risen with Christ with a body that's like His gloriously resurrected body. To have bodies that defeat death like His, and to physically relate and to fellowship with Christ for all eternity. Last week I wanted you to see that in the future resurrection we will bear the image of Christ, beholding the glory of God and the immensity of God's everlasting love. Today, as Paul closes this chapter, in these nine verses we see hope for that day. Because death will be done away with, and those of us who are in Christ will be with Him forever, saved into glory. You see, the words forever and eternity are not a reality while death occurs. We talk about forever and eternity, 
but they're always in the future for us right now. While death occurs, they're only words to us. They are part of the hope that we have. But Christ, He conquered death, and He gives that eternal hope, and He says He's coming back one day, and that eternal hope for the future that we have now, that eternal hope turns into an eternal reality for us. And we will be fitted in these resurrected bodies to enjoy it. Believers are expecting Jesus to come again and to take us with Him. But for that to happen, major changes have to occur. Death has to end and our bodies have to be transformed. And when this takes place, God says He will have the final victory. That's what Paul has us looking at today. This is how he closes out this great resurrection chapter. The bodily resurrection is God's ultimate victory. And it consummates, it finalizes eternal life with Christ. Is that how you think about salvation? Do you see God having ultimate victory? Not just forgiving your sin today but cleansing you so completely with a resurrected body and bringing you into His kingdom to live there for all eternity. Is that how you see salvation? Do you understand that death is defeated in salvation and fellowship with Christ is your reward? You see, this is what separates those who claim to be a Christian And those who are. Those who claim to be Christian know what Jesus did. They know that He died. They can tell you that He hung on the cross to forgive us of our sin. But their hope is in other things. Their hope does not rest in being with Christ after death. You see, they they want their sins forgiven apart from the transformation into holy vessels. They want to go on sinning without the guilt of sin. Holiness in the presence of God, for those who claim to be Christian, holiness in the presence of God has no weight on their life. It's nowhere on their conscience or in their heart. But for the Christian... For those by God's grace believe, those who put their hope in Christ, their faith is in a risen Savior who promises to transform their body to be like His, who promises to come back again and take Him to be with them, they see that as gain. They see that that is where their hope is. Because what, what once held them back and kept them away, is now replaced with anticipation and expectation for this future hope to come a reality. Believers have victory through Jesus Christ that enables them to look at death in the eye and say, Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? My Savior is coming back. He's going to resurrect me and I'm going to be with Him forever. Death, you have no hold on me. The sting of death 
brought by sin will be no more in the future resurrection. The power of sin being overcome by God's resurrection power. And the Christian is able to stand and thank God and live in eternal joy with Him. That's the difference between those who claim to be Christian and those who will have victory through Jesus Christ. And Paul, Paul holds up that victory and he tells us three things about this victory that we're now going to look at. First, for this to take place, there has to be complete transition from what is now to what will be. Then those who experience that glorious transition will celebrate the final victory. And third, knowing this, it affects how followers of Jesus Christ live today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ that assures our future resurrection is so powerful and final that it changes how we approach life today. Three points for us to look at as we come to the end of chapter 15. Let's look at them more closely. Number one, the necessary transition. There is a transition that has to take place. Paul tells us in verse 50 that no one can live with Christ in eternity with bodies that are morally weak and so overcome by temptation. Major changes have to occur before God's kingdom is experienced and enjoyed. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the imperishable. There is a necessary transition that has to take place. Now, two things to take away from from this verse. First, we need to understand what Paul means by flesh and blood and the perishable and imperishable. And second, we have to understand what it means, what's the meaning of not inheriting the kingdom of God. Paul's flesh and blood combination, when he puts those words together, is an expression of the temporary life the temporariness, how transient it is in the human life, how this life is so temporary. It's rooted in a Jewish statement that's found in the Old Testament. Leviticus 17 verse 14 says this, The life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. It's temporary. Only as long as the blood flows is their life. Now don't be confused when Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He is not countering what he has said all throughout this chapter and really all throughout the book. Your body, what runs through your veins, the blood that runs through your veins and your flesh, it is corrupted and it is corroding. Paul is saying that human life is temporary. It perishes. And because of this, 
your body cannot inherit what is imperishable. When there is the unity of your soul and your body, they cannot be temporary or perishable and live in a place and with a God who is imperishable. When believers die, their soul immediately goes to be with the Lord. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, away from the body is at home with the Lord. And then at some point when God determines their body, every believer's body is resurrected like Christ's and is united with their soul and they then inherit the kingdom of God. The perishable becoming imperishable to live in an everlasting kingdom. They actually take possession of it. See, in the Old Testament, the inheriting of the promised land that God gave His people, when He promised it and it was eventually given, that is a snippet of God giving the new heavens and the new earth. And eternal life lived in the kingdom. It's a little snippet. It's a little window into the reality of the future. Your body cannot have the eternal promised land. It's corrupted and corroding. You can't do this. Something that is decaying cannot enjoy something that's never ending. It needs major transformation. It will be your body gloriously changed to live in God's kingdom. That's what it will take. It will take a gloriously resurrected body like Christ in order to live in God's kingdom. It will no longer be mortal and perishing, but it will be eternal and imperishable. Paul describes it in verse 53 like being given new clothes. It has to be put on you. It's the same body but it's new and radically different. It'll be like new clothes that never fade or wear out. It'll be fitted in order to live in God's kingdom. Even our day, with all the medicine and the lifestyle that's promoted and the eating habits that's consumed people's lives and it's even extended life, Even with all this effort, this will not compare with what's coming. It doesn't matter what you do today, how much effort you put in in preserving it, your body is aging today. It's frail and it's temporary. Now I'm not downplaying, I'm not mocking a healthy lifestyle. It's good to be healthy and to be fit. But in the end, none of us can escape the decay of our mortal bodies. All the exercise and the medicine cannot keep death away. That begs the question, why then is so much prayer in the church consumed with health and wellness? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for these things. When I was sick and I had a thyroid condition, I wanted prayer. I I needed prayer. I'm thankful for the prayers. 
But this should not be all that prayer is. It should not consume the amount of our prayers. It ought to be only a small part. We ought to focus then on what's really coming, and that's eternal life. We don't focus on what's seen, we focus on what's unseen, because the seen is temporary, and the unseen is eternal. So why pray that way? Why spend so much time praying over our aches and our pains and not even thinking about what's coming? Our prayers ought to be consumed with the eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ. All the attention on health and wellness misses what's coming for us. There's a future where none of this will even be thought of. Our prayers should focus more on the day that's coming. And we should say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Your kingdom, come. Your will be done. Do what you will with our bodies today and in this life. So that that day will finally arrive when we are resurrected and we live with you in your kingdom forever and ever. That ought to be our prayer. That's how our Lord taught us to pray. We read that earlier. How many of us pray that way? The future resurrection of our bodies changes how we even approach God in prayer today. Everyone who's following Christ will be gloriously changed one day. Paul says then in verses 51 and 52, there's a mystery to this though. There's a mystery. The change that is necessary wasn't known before, but it's being revealed now to God's people. A mystery in the New Testament is something that's not known apart from God revealing it. And even when He reveals it, it's not fully comprehended. And that's what we have with the future resurrection. We know it will take place. We know it will be glorious. We know that it will be like our bodies now, but radically different. We know it has to take place in order to live in God's kingdom forever. But that's all that God has decided to tell us. And frankly, that's all we need to know. That's all we need to know to put our hope in what's coming in the future. The mystery is the instant change that all of God's people will go through somehow. I can't explain that. I can't explain how bodies that are decomposing and and have completely decayed and gone back into the dirt will be resurrected somehow gloriously in an instant. Like the flashing of an eye. Twinkling of an eye. Paul says, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And at the end of verse 52, he says it again, we shall be changed. For the believer, this body, whether it's alive or whether it's dead, will be changed instantly when God comes. When Jesus returns. We know it will happen, but we can't fully describe it. And we don't know when. There's a mystery to it. 
But we do know that every single believer will go through this change. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is God's promise to you personally. You will be changed instantly, fitted for God's kingdom. And it's final. It's a change that's never undone. It will last forever. At the last trumpet, which means when you, when you read the last trumpet, what that means is, is that nothing will thwart it. Nothing will get in the way. There will be the last trumpet. We'll hear the last trumpet. It will be sounded. And this instant change will occur. The power and the glory of God instantly transforming your lowly, perishable body into a holy, glorious vessel to enjoy Him forever. Jesus Himself spoke of this in Matthew 24, verse 30. All will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. That's all over the world, brothers and sisters, you and me, being raised in an instant to be with Jesus Christ. Next, in verses 54 through 57, the celebration of this instant change is the final victory. It's the final victory. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, there will be no more death. There will only be thanksgiving to God because He gives His people victory through Jesus Christ. That victory is final. Death will be defeated. It will be defeated ultimately and completely. It simply will no longer exist. It will no longer be an enemy that taunts you and taunts me. It will be powerless and done away with. It will be conquered, finally. Paul then quotes Isaiah 25, verse 8, which is part of a foreshadowing of salvation, and he includes Hosea 13, 14, which ascribes to the Lord victory for delivering His people from the terror and the harm of death. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? What leads Paul to celebrate victory over death? Paul is almost singing this when he's writing it. There's victory over death. And why is he celebrating? Why is he writing this to the Corinthians? Why are you and I focused on it today? the celebration over the victory we have in Jesus Christ. We'll turn back to verse 16 again with me, please. Verse 16, Paul already told us, If the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, if our faith only lasts 
to the end of our day and then we experience death, what good is it? What good is it if your sins are forgiven and you don't get to enjoy this relationship with God forever? But then we have verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. That's how Christians look at death. Those who've gone before us, every follower of Jesus Christ before us, they're simply fallen asleep. I personally have faced death four times in my life so far. Four times when I almost died or I could have died. The first time is when I was still in the womb. The doctors told my parents to prepare for a stillborn. Then at the time of the birth, they said I would be dead, but God spared my parents that that agony and I I was born alive. Another time was when I was a toddler. I had been sick all day and all of a sudden I stopped breathing. My parents rushed me to the hospital. I lost consciousness. They didn't know what was going to happen. They prayed for me and I regained consciousness and I began breathing again. And the doctors never could figure out what happened to me. The third time was when I was in the Marines and I was deployed to Iraq fighting in the war. Death seemed to be around every corner. We didn't know what we would face next. The last time was 10 years ago when I was diagnosed with a thyroid condition. I didn't know at the time if I was having a heart attack, if I was in the process of dying, or what was going on. And I later found out if left untreated, the thyroid condition would lead to a heart attack and I would die. Four times in my life so far, I've come close. I either have faced it, or I've come close to dying. I'm sure there are others who have faced death more than that. Maybe you have. For me, I have four times. But I will still die one day unless Christ comes back. Paul faced death every day. And for every person here, death is in your future unless Christ comes back. On that day when He returns, those four times I look back to and I remember, they will seem so puny and insignificant because I will be given a resurrected body and I'll be alive forever. Death will be a distant memory. I'll keep on living forever and ever. What's four times compared to eternity? But now, now today, the sting of death impacts every family. It can come unexpectedly. It can come in a way that's really drawn out. At times, some people are given when it will happen because of a sickness or a disease. But the fact is, every person faces death right now. No doctor can keep it away. But Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. Death has already been defeated by one who's faced it, who will en- who endured it and who overcame it. He is the spotless lamb of God who was slain for God's people, the one who hung on the cross and bled to atone for sin. 
the one whose body was in the grave for three days, and the one who rose triumphantly on Easter morning defeating death. Our Lord Jesus Christ struck death a death blow. He defeated it. What seems unbeatable has already been beaten. Christ has victory over death. And when He comes, those of us who are trusting and waiting for Him, we will have the same victory. We will have victory over death. Death will be swallowed up. It will be done away with. You and I, who believe in Jesus Christ today, knowing we may die, but that's not the end. We can look at death and say, where's your sting? Do you know what's in my fate? Do you know where I'm headed, death? As a follower of Jesus Christ, if I die, I go to be with Him immediately. And one day, He's going to resurrect my body. And I'm going to live forever in His kingdom. Even if my body decays, even if it decomposes, when He returns, I will be instantly resurrected. And that goes the same for every believer here. Death, where's your sting? Where's your victory? Death is not the end for us. Christ is the end. He is our final resting place. He is our future. Verse 56 gives a sober reminder. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. You see, death stings today because of sin. Because the full power of God's law is behind it. The penalty for sin is death. Because of the fall in the Garden of Eden... Every person is bound under this penalty for sin. God's law says that death is the consequence for sin. And every person is born into this sin. And every person faces death. And then we love sin as we live. And we want more and more of it. And so death stings us. It's potent and it's vicious. Paul writes in Romans 5, 12-14, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. You see, you and I can't blame Adam. All of us are born into sin and we love it. Sin then leads to a spiritual death. And every person here faces that death. It's a death that's apart from God. It's being forsaken by God and experiencing His judgment. And as each person is born into sin and each person turns away from God, death is there stinging and killing like a deadly poison. 
every person apart from God, is right in the bullseye of death. Friend, know that only followers of Jesus Christ are saved from this and will be given a great eternal inheritance. And we now look at death and say, there is no sting. It's not my end. Only the Christian has verse 57. Look with me please. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is for you, Christian. That verse is yours. Death has no victory in the saints of God because of what Christ has already done to it. The Christian celebrates and gives thanks to God. Christians are thankful people because of what Christ has already done for us. Nothing in this world can stop us from rising again to be with our Savior. Nothing. Nothing will come between us in our inheritance. Nothing. Believers are now dead to sin and alive in Christ. We are freed from death's sting. Our future is not one of decay and corruption and separation from God. It's one of holiness and joy in the presence of God because of Jesus. And we say thanks be to God. The weight of our sin, what once condemned us before God, is now swallowed up in victory. Christ with His resurrection has guaranteed this ultimate victory. And now Christians everywhere, all over the world, we celebrate in thanksgiving to God. Lastly, the third point this morning, there is a present impact because of this victory. Look with me please at verse 58. Therefore, a very important word, Because of the victory in Christ and your bodily resurrection, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What you do today for Christ is not in vain. Because of the victory and the bodily resurrection that's coming when Christ returns, you and I who are in Christ, you and I whose hope is in the risen Savior, knowing that we will one day rise, are exhorted to three things in this verse. Three things. Be steadfast, be immovable, and abound in work for the Lord. The first two are pretty much the same, being steadfast and immovable. In other words, stand firm. Don't be distracted by this world. Be focused in it. Don't be easily moved away from God's purpose in saving you. Live your life centered on the amazing promise that you're being given an eternal weight of glory in an eternal kingdom. So what happens today is temporary. Live your life centered on that promise. Nothing else should take so much of your time and your attention and your focus. Everything else is temporary. You are to be consistent and constant in your fervor for Jesus Christ. 
abounding in work. Not just doing it, not just checking the box, not just saying, okay, I'll do what I have to do. No, this is abounding in it. It's it's flowing from you. You're looking for ways to do this work for God, knowing what's in store for you. Specifically, as a member of this church, committed to advancing the gospel, since this is what we're called to do until He returns. We are here to make disciples, sharing the supreme worth of Jesus Christ. We are to be living, teaching, sharing that He is the focus, the admiration, and the joy of all of life. And we are to always be giving of ourselves to the work of the gospel. Not just on Sunday, not just on the Lord's Day. This is when the church gathers together for worship. But what about the rest of the ministry of the church? We are to be abounding in this ministry knowing what's coming ahead. Because we know what's coming is why we can face today and risk it all for Jesus Christ. Because it's really no risk, is it? Death has been defeated. You're being given an inheritance that lasts forever. What we do today, there is no risk. This truth about what John Owen calls the death of death, this truth calls believers to radical obedience today. We do this knowing that our labor is not in vain. We are working toward the goal of God, completing His sovereign plan of grace. His glory affirms that our labor is worthwhile. His power affirms that our labor will be useful. This is a call to faithful Christian service, both inside the church to your fellow church members, to your brothers and sisters, committing ourselves to wanting one another's good, one another's welfare, but it's also a call outside the church, among the lost, where we till the ground and we work the soil, knowing that it's God who plants the seed and He waters it and He makes it grow. That's abounding. We do this with the assurance that our future resurrection is secure in Christ and it's coming. When Christ returns you and I will be brought into His kingdom of joy forever and will be fitted with pure delight for all eternity. So let's abound in the work of the Lord. And let's know, let's remember as we do it, what's coming for those who are in Christ. Let's pray.